Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Someone's cold nose is nudging me, knocking hard against my right hand and arm. Avoiding the gesture only makes him more insistent. Black and white legs are upside down in the air. They may look like they're flailing, but the windmilling paws are strategic. Fred is on a mission to supplant the thing I'm ignoring him for. Lapdog versus laptop in a contest previous form says he'll win. For almost ten years, Fred has been herding me around this house. I've only just registered that that's what he's doing, that I'm his unwitting, obedient flock. His sister Ginger lives mostly downstairs. No room up here to chase a ball or a squeaky toy. So why would she bother? I can barely remember life, B.C., before Collie. Fred and Ginger. He does move like a dancer, on tiptoes. He'd do well in the dressage round at the Dublin Horse Show. He has the black and white markings of evening dress, tuxedo style. A genteel film star of yore. If not Fred Astaire himself, then David Niven, perhaps. Ginger is black and white and tan, with a magnificent Elizabethan fur ruff around her neck. She moves like John Wayne, broad-shouldered, with more purpose than grace, especially in pursuit of a ball, throwing her weight forward into heaving shoulders. If show-jumping at the RDS is Fred's arena, the Aviva Stadium would be Ginger's. She'd be good in a rugby scrum. He is all slender elegance as he runs. She keeps her poise for domestic life. Not for her, his frantic seeking of attention and approval from anything with a pulse. No, she is a regal dog. One who likes her own space. And my best rugs. She's so self-contained and deliberate indoors that to see that comic, clumsy run outside is to witness unexpected, endearing vulnerability. Both of amber eyes and the bewitching border collie stare. As with many of my better ideas, I had little clue what I was taking on when Fred and Ginger arrived in June 2013. I went through a portal new parents know only too well. The elation, the fear, the dopamine hits. They were tiny, bionic furballs. Fred velcroed himself to me wherever I went. Ginger, more wary to begin with, would engage only if I threw a ball for her in the backyard which I did. A lot. I camped out downstairs with them that first summer. Snack, snooze, walk, and repeat. Eventually, everything I said wouldn't happen on the home front did. The dogs weren't to be allowed on the sofa. They would not be going upstairs, and certainly not onto beds. Friends endured my initial confident declarations, and then enjoyed the U-turns. I am not as dogged as Collie's, it turns out. Snack, snooze, walk. The walks were and are best of all. Following those fluffy ears and jaunty tails out the road. Full of enthusiasm for the exact same paths we'd take day after day. We discovered nearby fields, other dogs and their humans. My tribe. Henry, Cosmo, Winnie, Troy, Milo, Charlie... Russell, the Jack Russell. 
Canine names easier to recall, of course, than people's. We dog folk talked about dogs, and work, but mostly dogs. Until Covid. When new resonance was bestowed on your nearest 5k, and who you cross paths with. Then we talked about how eerie it all was. Schools closed, streets emptied, the silence, the not knowing, everyone's not knowing, even the experts to begin with. We greeted each other like comrades in the same disaster movie. Three years on, the worst of the pandemic over. I know where to find sun and shade on these regular routes. I know where the grandest magnolias and the brightest laburnum live. I've encountered the same trees and hedgerows maybe twice a day, every day, in every season, from early blossom to the spare branches of winter, from light-filled spring greens to mature autumn reds, in sun and wind and rain and snow. I've learned that repetition has its joys and that change happens anyway, unasked for, even in times of apparent limbo. Ten years is a considerable span in a dog's life. I don't do the maths. After those early intense training years, mine as much as theirs, we got into the swing of things, found the measure of each other. I speak Collie now, can tell the meaning of one bark from another. And they don't bark much in truth. The stare is loud enough. Life with Fred and Ginger is never still. Birds and strangers to chase when they're on home turf. Neighbours and strangers to rush up to and greet when we're out and about. Like they're humans, they're cafe dogs. They, like us, are slowing down. It's late in the day. Fred is snoring gently here beside me. Every now and again a paw shoots out and catches my arm. I better go. There may be trouble ahead But while there's moonlight and music And love and romance Let's face the music and dance Before the fiddlers have fled before they ask us to pay the bill And while we still have the time Miss Austin has no romance, none at all, was John Henry Newman's crisp assessment of the creator of some of the greatest romances of all time. Literary scholars and readers alike regard Jane Austen's novels as unrivalled in their understanding of love and loss and in their portrayals of clumsy proposals, thwarted crushes and the brutal economics of the gentry's marriage market in the 18th and 19th centuries. But did she ever find her own Mr Darcy in real life? Among the songs and sheet music that Jane Austen kept on her piano is a song called The Irishman. Written for the pro-revolutionary musical The Picture of Paris, it was neatly copied down by Jane for a very personal reason, writes critic Corinna Redioff. The song includes the lines Let them ask as they cross the street of any young virgin they happen to meet and I know she'll say from behind her fan that there's none can love like an Irishman. 
The Irishman who crossed Jane's path in 1795 was young Tom Lefroy from Limerick, who took a break from his legal studies to visit his aunt and uncle in Hampshire for the Christmas season. Reverend Lefroy and his wife Anna were friends and neighbours of the Austins. Tom and Jane, both aged 20, soon set the neighbourhood talking with their brazen and blatant attraction for each other. I am almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved, Jane wrote to her sister Cassandra on the 9th of January. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. She describes him as a very gentlemanlike, good-looking, pleasant young man. He's a great admirer of Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, she adds. That the couple would discuss such a racy novel on the dance floor or anywhere else clearly suggests a familiarity. Five days later, Jane writes again. Now she anticipates a party at the home of Tom's uncle. I look forward with great impatience to it, as I rather expect to receive an offer from my friend, she tells Cassandra. She has no interest in any other admirer, as she means to fully confine herself in future to Mr. Tom Lefroy. Then suddenly the romance is at an end. On January 15th, another letter. I am to flirt my last with Tom Lefroy, and when you receive this it will be over, Jane writes. My tears flow as I write at the melancholy idea. Tom's aunt had intervened and sent him packing that no more mischief might be done. Unlike the fictional Mr Darcy, Tom Lefroy was not an heir to great estates of wealth. As the eldest son of eleven children, with five sisters ahead of him, the future of his entire family depended on Tom marrying money. Jane had none. It does appear that he recovered more quickly than she. Jane's niece, Caroline Austin, recalled that if there was any heartlessness in the matter, it was on the gentleman's side. Almost three years after the breakup, Jane wrote to her sister, recounting a visit from Tom's aunt. Mrs. Lefroy didn't speak of her nephew, Jane writes, and I was too proud to make any inquiries. By then, Tom was engaged to an Irish heiress named Mary Paul. When Tom married, Jane's heart must have shattered, suggests critic Colleen Sheehan. If she loved Tom Lefroy, as Anne Elliot loved Captain Wentworth, her love would endure even when all hope was lost. Intriguingly, Professor Sheehan shows how in the novel Emma, Jane has embedded within the games and riddles of Chapter 9 an anagram of her Irishman's name. Tom Lefroy became a prominent member of the Irish Bar and ultimately Lord Chief Justice of Ireland. But he didn't forget about Jane. He named his first daughter Jane Christmas and on learning of Jane's death in 1817, he travelled to England to pay his respects. Some years later, at the auction of publisher Thomas Cadell's papers, the rejection letter for the novel First Impressions by Jane Austen was bought by one Tom Lefroy. Jane had begun First Impressions around the time of their whirlwind romance. It was later published as Pride and Prejudice, featuring the dashing Mr Darcy. 
In Tom's old age, when his nephew asked, Were you ever in love with Jane Austen? Tom answered, Yes, with a boyish love. Jane never married. Perhaps we can take comfort in the notion that if Jane Austen had married her Irishman and become busy with husband and household, she might never have written six of the finest novels in English literature. And we'd never have had the pleasure of encountering on the page Mr Darcy, who, according to a reader's poll, is the character women most want to date. Hey, the turban Turk who scorns the world May strut about with his whiskers curled Keep a hundred wives under lock and key For nobody else but himself to see Yet long may he pray with his Alcoran Before he can love like an Irish man Long may he pray with his Alcoran The Church of Ireland people make a great sponge cake, my granny used to say standing more often than not over her mixing bowl, knuckle-deep in brown flour and buttermilk. And now that I have married into that community, a look at my post-Christmas waistline would seem to confirm the accuracy of her statement. Any attempt on my part to avoid sugar in late December was foiled by my in-laws, who made sure I was weighed down with enough pastries and other baked goods to sink the Dublin Bay boy. It is difficult to know where this particular stereotype developed, but it might be attributed in part to the Irish Countrywomen's Association, the pre-runner of which was founded by a group of mainly Protestant women in Wexford over 100 years ago. Inspired in part by the cooperative movement, which returned a sense of self-reliance and optimism to the countryside, its founder Anita Lett envisioned an association that had allowed women, bringing, as she put it, the full force of their influence on building up the future of Ireland. That the ICA played an important role in the evolution of the state, and in particular the empowerment of women in rural Ireland, was often overlooked because, for good or ill, it became for a time overwhelmingly associated with craft-making and baking. Indeed, mention it to most young people, wrote the historian Jermuth Ferreter in his history of the organisation, and they'll give a mischievous and slightly disdainful grin and go on to talk about buns and tea cosies. That might have been a problem for my grandmother, who flirted on the fringes of the ICA but never joined, as far as I can tell. That seems a shame, as she embodied the spirit of self-reliance and perseverance which the organisation looked to stir up from the start. She was a sort of bare grills of the cooking world, turning anything within 50 metres of the house into something to put on the dresser. No raspberry was safe from a jam jar or apple from another tart, which invariably ended up in our car boot when we visited along with all the vegetables and fruit Grandad had grown too much of, again. But there was never a sponge cake, not in her house or ours, where my own mother turns out enough tea brack and brown bread to feed a scout troop. Even today, there isn't a christening or family gathering where people don't ask for my mother, Colleen's, chocolate cake. Here I must add a disclaimer. The recipe was actually Ursula Grennan's from next door. In fact, it still says Ursula's chocolate cake in Mam's little book of recipes. The elusive sponge did not appear in my life or on my table until many years later, when, dallying in a bar in Addis Ababa, I got talking to a girl who happened to be a member of that group much maligned as home bakers and experts in the way of mixing eggs, 
white flour and sugar. Some time later, on first visiting her home in the Midlands, I was presented with nothing less than a glorious sponge cake filled with thick cream and stuffed with strawberries. It's usually difficult to put a date on when you know you have been truly welcomed into a family. But the day her mother let me into the secret that she put the eggs on the radiator and this is what made her sponge cake so fluffy, I knew that I'd been accepted, like the ingredients, into the fold. In order to make something that kept for a week in advance, we opted for biscuit cake for our wedding. But in a nod to culinary ecumenism, her side made the filling and mine the icing, mixed in the same yellow stone bowl that Granny needed dough in in Kinnity all those years before. Are you dancing? She says. Are you asking? I say. I look down at my brogues, await her answer. My cheeks are burning, heart is beating faster. A beaming smile is spread across my face now. Dare I look up and meet her gaze? I want to. She takes my hand and asks again, You dancing? Skin on skin, high voltage sparks ignite. Floating high, I walk onto the dance floor. I take her in my arms, we dance all night. I laid the colours of me at her feet then. She painted me in vivid shades of light. We painted years that followed, spent together. In shades of sunny days and starlit nights. A million songs and dances filled our decades, establishing the soundtrack of our lives. But dancing feet stop dancing when their time comes. My feet, they dance alone through widowed life now. Are you dancing? I say. Are you asking? I say. I hug her dinner dress close to my heart now. I look down at my brogues, Secure my footing, I close my eyes and dance with her once more. Me and Annie walking out into the dusk after choir practice. The ice pop orange lights along the driveway coming on one by one. The sound of tyres first, skimming across the tarmac and then skidding to a stop in a show-offy way. Jared Sullivan and Mossy McCabe, with others I don't know, they begin to circle us. 
The vinegary scent of chips mingles with the scent of candle wax and incense on my coat, my Christmas coat, and my new boots clinging to my calves. Hey, boots, Mossy calls out, skids to a stop in front of me. Do you want a chip? The left side of his face is in shadow, so I can't see the twist in that eye. Annie says that it's a glass eye, but I don't think so. Astigmatism, the optician called it, said I had a slight astigmatism in my left eye, but is not as pronounced as his. The chip bag is warm, the last of the chips soggy down the end of the bag. The acidy vinegar shoots up my nose. Gerard is offering a neater-looking bag of chips to Annie. Gerard was my first boyfriend. Came to my house when we were only eleven with a present. A chain with a small cross studded with blue glass. He's nice, Gerard. A good boy. Not like Mossy, who's walking beside me now, stopping to lean the bike against his thigh so he can wolf down the last of the chips. Mossy's brother, Fran, has been in prison and his mother drinks. The others fade back into the dusk. Gerard and Mossy cycle slowly along with us through the lanes and roads of our housing estate. Annie gets onto the crossbar of Gerard's bike and they wave as they take the turn for her house. Her family are what my dad calls holier than thou and her mother says that my skirts are too short. Annie wears dresses her mother made and I thought that she would never get a boyfriend but her eyes are such a deep blue and her eyelashes are spider leg long. Of course Gerard likes her. I'm alone in the dark with Mossy and he's walking me home. And there is no one home because our shop opens late on a Thursday and my little sister Ellie goes there after school. I'll see you then, I say at our side wall in the lane. But he drops his bike and hops over the wall with me, walking me around the back where it's very dark. I wonder if he's going to try and ravish me with hard and insistent lips like the men in my mother's novels. Uh, Good night then, I say as I jump through our unlocked back door into the kitchen. The supersair gives a familiar rattle. He jams his foot in the door like a pushy salesman, grabs my hand and pulls me back outside. His lips on mine are soft, not hard at all. His army jacket smells of vinegary chips. He pulls away a little and looks at me, not smiling and taller than I thought. He reaches into his jacket pocket and takes out a small box of chocolates. A present for you. Then he's gone. Coming in from school the next day, Dad comes through the kitchen followed by Mam. Who's Mossy McCabe? Just a friend of Gerard's. Well, his mother was here earlier, Dad says, and he's smiling to himself. Mam joins in, standing at the front door in her fur coat, ranting and raving. Why? Said her son is a little tyke and we should keep you away from him. I don't know him very well. Well, maybe stay clear of him all the same, Dad says. Our scruffy poodle Dixie follows me up to my box room bedroom and leaps onto the bed. I lift the crinkly sheet to expose the chocolates, each in its own shaped nest. Next day I pass his gang on the street. Jared breaks away from the others, tells me that Mossy's mother has locked him up, that he had a split lip when he called out from his bedroom window. Nights I lie awake thinking of him the way the twist in his eye makes him look like he's trying to figure something out. I wait, but he never calls. I save the chocolates until they turn white. 
The Trout The river was beautiful, dark water running smoothly before the rocks, silver-white and golden ochre as it broke. Below the rocks, the pool, calm as if in world satisfaction, promise in its depths. Father, fishing, absorbed in the world. When he had the trout up on the bank, the sorrow began within me. That innocent, lithe body, its gold-brown colouring, spots on its skin like miniature halos. Eye-wide, unmoving, lips hard, mouth gasping. Father put his thumb inside, forced back the head, and I heard bones snapping. I almost wept. But this was my father, fishing, who was spring and flow for me. He was absorbed then in the world, but I felt something in creation's plan move towards disorder. When the quintet stepped out onto the stage, I was sad too. They were elderly, white-haired, fumbly, the door banged back behind them as they foostered towards the chairs, while I became aware of the hard bench under me. Three old gentlemen, one old woman, a younger one at the piano. They sat, ordering themselves to a settling of instruments, bows and strings, the piano stool, the tautness of the instruments like the stiffness of the flesh. I was dismayed. Schubert, Di Forella. Then they began. Within moments it was father again, absorbed in the world. There was an early summer breeze, the sun shone, stream water sparkled, fitting itself wholly into itself. Earth a joy, azure the unattainable sky. Piano runs and playfulness, strings like lithe bodies in fluid mastery. When I opened my eyes, I saw them, the elders, flux and energy of their bodies absorbed from one another, moving like reed beds, like water lilies. And it was love. It was the spirit breathing again through Genesis as if the seniors were extracting order and not imposing it. Disparate they were, shifting in their own breezes, yet shifting as one, their parts moving, the whole refigured, segment and whole resolving. I found myself, afterwards, exhausted, laid out on the green fields of the world, hurt, and never so alive.
Eggs. That same summer she sent up the hills to Ahamore with a setting of eggs for Huey Johnny. Walking slowly, eggs warm in her apron, she follows the old tracks, across stile and footstick, thinks of her grandmother walking these same hills, defying her parents, learning Irish, marrying there. The buttercups are sways of gold. She stops and stoops to pluck one, holds it to her chin till the sun spot hovers there, a sign she loves butter, and she does, loves the red cows grazing and the splash of the churn, the bite of buttermilk on a day like this. She looks down over the lake, the road twisting in and out of sight, the world stilled in a hot haze. What will I do? What will become of me? She knows she could not bear to go to America, to leave all this. Time enough. Stop thinking. Today is all, and her dog is racing on, waiting, coming back to lick her hand away again, impatient and alert. She walks carefully puts the flower in her apron pocket, breathes in the sweet, clean scent of meadows scythed and down, pauses on the shady lane near Granny Sally's beneath a burst of fuchsia, pulls a gooseberry from the tangle of hedge, rubs it on her breast, bites the green, sour, tingled flesh and laughs. Thinks of the girl from the colliery in Arigna, who walked here carrying a backload of fresh nettles from Corris to make soup. Sally fed her gruel on the doorstep of this house, and the girl died when she got home. Her father, a stonemason, carved a rising sun on the side of a thin vertical stone to mark her grave. Somebody broke it later. The smell of manure riches the air, a cow is looing in the whitewashed byre, she touches the horseshoe over the door. The dog laps water from the old well, frog spawn deep and murky green, his pink tongue sends silver sparkles flying. Did Patrick rest here, bless this well? A man-keeper basks on the hot mottled stone. If you were swift to catch him, lick his belly, you'd have a cure for burn. Now step across the stream and lift the woven willow hoop on the wooden gate, last slope to the great Scots pine. And standing under it, a man, a bush saw under his arm, not Huey or his brother Jimmy, a young man, big-shouldered in a white shirt, long, strong face, stern, cap on his head. She pauses halfway up the field. The dog is walking on, tentative, tail wagging slowly now. He watches her, and something stirs within her, some foretaste of what will be. Hello, he says, and smiles, warm as the day. Takes off his cap. Brown hair bounds up. Come on, I won't bite you. I'm John, Huey's nephew. Who are you? Oh, I'm Mary Carley, and I'm come with a setting of eggs. 
He knew then and there he would marry her. Knew their children would run here. On this morning's mix of new and recent archive scripts, we heard Fred and Ginger by Paula Shields. There's None Can Love Like an Irishman by Lourdes Mackey. Sponge Cake and Culinary Ecumenism by Jodie Clark. Are Ye Dancing? A poem by Sarah Shine. After the Hymns by Lanny O'Hanlon. The Trout, a poem by John F. Dean. And Eggs, a poem by Vincent Woods. The music was Let's Face the Music and Dance by Irving Berlin, sung by Fred Astaire. Nobody Loves Like an Irishman, sung by Lonnie Donergan. Sugar Sugar was by the Archies. Yellow Tinker and Real Vuur Valenchala by Cormac Begley. Only You by Yazoo. And Schubert's Trout Quintet. Fourth movement, played by the soloists of the Royal Opera House Orchestra, Convent Garden. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.